Welcome to Blue Collar Zen. We hope you enjoy these tales and conversations recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Welcome back to the podcast. This week we fast forward into the 19th and 20th century and into the lives of some of the most famous modern day monks of Korean Zen Buddhism. The first tale I'm going to read to you is a very short story about Master Kyungha and his young disciple Mangong. Kyungha was born in 1849 in Yosan at a time when Buddhism throughout Korea was oppressed and uh, monks were banned actually from entering the city of Seoul. And so the Zen communities that existed uh, throughout the mountains of Korea were very autonomous and uh, poor. Kyungha was considered to be a great revivalist. He was able to revitalize the Korean Buddhist legacy from near extinction and was such a powerful and inspiring teacher that it's often said that without Kyungha, Korean Buddhism would have completely disappeared from the peninsula. He is thought of as a kind of second coming of Wonhyo, who we spoke about in the previous podcasts. Master Kyungha was a mentor for many who later became the pillars of Zen in Korea. The most famous of his disciples was a monk called Mangong. And so in this story, Master Kyungha teaches the young Mangong a very valuable lesson. I hope you enjoy it. On certain occasions, Master Kyungha would take his student Mangong for alms rounds. One fine summer day, the two monks were on their way with offerings of rice on their backs, having begged from one village to the next. They had spent the whole day begging, and they were exhausted, and their bags were heavy. The young Mangong said to his master, Master, this sack is too heavy for me to keep up. Could we please rest for a while? The master responded, Leave one or the other behind. Perplexed, Mangong said, What do you mean, leave one or the other behind? Kyungha replied, You must either let go of the thought that thinks the bag is heavy, or you must leave that sack behind. Mangong replied, But master, what do you mean? How could you ask me to leave behind the rice we have worked so hard for all day? Or how could I let go of the thought that the sack is heavy, when it really is heavy? Master Kyungha took the lead again and began to walk ahead of his disciple, while Mangong, who was out of breath, ran after him. Mangong said, Master, I'm really out of breath now. Can we please stop for a rest? Kyungha replied, Catch up. I will certainly help you not feel so tired once we reach that village up ahead. Mangong put aside his doubts with his master's assurance of a rest and followed him the best he could. When they reached the village, they spied a well at the entrance, with farmers working diligently nearby in the fields. A young village girl was passing in front of the monks. She had a jug of water on her head. 
Suddenly, in the blink of an eye, Kyung-ha grabbed and kissed the young girl on the lips. With a loud yell of surprise from the woman, the porcelain jug fell and shattered to the ground. Witnessing this inconceivable act, the villagers ran toward the monks with sticks and hoes in their hands, yelling, Grab those monks! The event occurred in the briefest of moments. Mangong ran from the village like there was no tomorrow. No one could tell how long they'd been running with all the strength they could muster, until at last, no villagers were seen chasing them. And Mangong saw Kyungha sitting quietly by a pine tree in the forest, waiting for him. Kyungha exclaimed, Ha! So you managed to get away too without being caught. But how could you do such a thing? Even a layman would never do that. Yes, perhaps you are right, but did you notice whether your rice sack was heavy as you were being chased? Many years later, after this experience with his teacher in the rice bag, Mangong went on to become the greatest living Zen master in Korea. Mangong was born in 1871 in Jolado province. He ran away from home at 14 and was wandering around the temples of Korea until he met his master Kyungha and became a novice monk. Eventually, Mangong came to reside as the master of Sudoksa Temple and had a young disciple himself by the name of Jinsung Wandam. This monk became the teacher of our own abbot here at the center. And so the story hits very close to the heart. I hope you enjoy it. In the late 1930s, when Zen Master Mangong was staying at Sudoksa Temple, the following incident took place. One day a young novice named Jinsung Wandam Sunam came back from chopping wood singing a new song that some mischievous lumberjacks had taught him. Woodpecker up in the mountains, drilling holes in trees just fine. The fool sitting at home can't even drill a ready-made hole. Young Jinsung had no concept of sexual implications contained within the lyrics and sang the odd song in a high-pitched voice as he walked throughout the temple grounds. One day, Master Mangong heard Jinsung singing and called the young monk. That's a nice song you're singing. Don't ever forget it. Certainly, Master. The novice Jinsung was overjoyed at the praise of this great monk. One spring day, the court ladies and maids of the royal family visited from Hanyang to request for the master's teaching. The master happily received them and called for Jinsung, saying that there was a very good teaching in a song and they should play, pay close attention to it. Jinsung, I'd like you to sing that woodpecker song for us. Young Jinsung blushed at the sudden request from the elder master to sing in front of so many elegant ladies. As he had been complimented for his singing in the past, however, he gladly accepted and began to sing the woodpecker song at the top of his lungs. Woodpecker up in the mountains, drilling holes in the trees. As the novice monk began singing, the lay women, devotees, uh, from the royal family stared down in embarrassment. 
At that moment, Venerable Mangong stated, This song contains countless profound Buddhist teachings for all human beings. One with a pure, bright mind may attain much from these woodpecker dharma teachings, whereas one who is impure will merely conjure up foul delusions. True dharma transcends the boundaries of what is beautiful, pure, obscene, or impure. A fool is one who does not realize that all seeds ready to germinate into the Buddha. All sentient beings have this Buddha nature, as did the Buddha himself. Buddha Dharma is that which allows one to penetrate this principle and realize true nature. However, those who fall prey to the three poisons, desire, anger, and delusion, which kill the pure nature of one's true mind and become enslaved by these delusions are miserable, ignorant beings whirling about in the world of samsara. Truth is found close to our hearts. The great path has no obstacles or hindrances, is wide open to the whole world, and thus very close to us at all times. This song may represent a great Buddhist teaching for those who cannot distinguish right from wrong, a commentary on the countless beings who are no better than a woodpecker. Upon receiving Venerable Mangong's Dharma talk, the ladies thanked the master and paid homage with their palms together in respect. Upon returning to the palace, the court ladies relayed the teachings of the woodpecker song to the queen. The queen was greatly inspired by the teaching and invited the young novice who sang the song. Thus the song was once again sung, this time in the palace. While Master Mangong was stern and intimidating at times, as has been seen with the Japanese generals during the Korean occupation, he could also be an innocent and playful like a child. On certain occasions, the master would sing and dance the crispy rice song until all who heard him rolled on the floor with laughter. Come here, go there, behind the kitchen door, standing there, give me some rice, crispy rice, please give me some rice, eat, enjoy. Just imagine the great master Mongong singing this song and dancing like a child, completely innocent and pure. Doesn't it really just warm your heart? Well, thank you for that story, Sonam. Well, what I like to let people know about that story is that that young novice singing the woodpecker song uh, became my teacher, as well as the uh, third Pangjang Sunam of Sudoksa. He passed away in 2008 um, in his late 70s. Yeah, so I, I never heard that directly from him, the story. Of course, I didn't speak Korean well enough. He, he may have told it in, during a Dharma talk, although it's not the kind of 
story that you tell about yourself usually. So uh, we're grateful that people were able to uh, enjoy it and appreciate the the, the deep Dharma teachings uh, about uh, pure mindedness mm. and how this sort of allows you to see uh, where your mind is mm. um, when you hear the song and you don't need to feel bad about that but it's just a reflection of uh, how somebody innocent and pure like Wandam Sunam was uh, just really uh, was so enthusiastically singing that song in all the situations that that he that he sung it um, very interesting and I'm not exactly sure of his age he entered the temple when he was merely nine years old so he could have been in his you know his teens, even his early teens. I'm not. I'm not sure of that. But he was a novice at that time, which is before you were uh, fully ordained as a monk. So, uh, and later on in his career, he became Mangong Sunam's attendant, uh, and he was only 18 when that happened. I have a picture of him standing next to Mangong when Wandam was only. 18 years old so yeah it's very nice with this story uh the the previous podcast story was the story of the young mangan carrying the heavy rice bag with Mm. his own teacher kyung ha yeah and now we get to hear the story of uh mangong who has now become a master himself and uh the way that he uh, is teaching a young novice, your teacher, Wandam. So it's it's really beautiful to, through these stories, to experience the sort of the aliveness of the tradition. A, a young novice grows up to become a master and has his own students who then grow up to become masters and so on. Yeah. How old were you when you met Wandam? The first time I actually met him, um, I was, I think, 37 years old. Do you have any memory of that first encounter? Or any a story you could share? I think I'd have to um, let you know this, that I went to Korea on my own, and I had been invited by um, Pyokjo Sunam, who actually was the success, direct successor of Mangong Sunam, but much more senior to Wandam Sunam, and actually did a lot of the training of Wandam Sunam. Mm. And I met him in 1984. He was 86 years old, but um, we had an affinity for uh, each other, and uh, in the course of drinking tea, uh, he invited me to stay and become his student. Yeah. And my teacher was translating, so he turned to me, my teacher turned to me and said, he'd like you to stay and be his student. Would you like to do that? And I just immediately said, yes. <laughs> and he said, now is not the time. We have to settle our affairs in uh, Ann Arbor at that time so that uh, 
I I can leave there properly, and 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 uh, but I did promise to come back, and at which point when I was leaving, we spent three or four hours together. He said to me, uh, "You're going to." go back to America and then come back to Korea. Can you do it without coming and going? Mm. Of course, at that time, my mind had uh, no idea what he was talking about. But his he had a certain fierceness to him that was kind of enticing, not at all... Uh, I mean, it was a little scary. He was a fairly uh, strong character, the... Um, his history was these incredible feats of of muscular strength. So, uh, but he wasn't so intimidating that I was uh, afraid of him. Anyway, so when I got back to Korea, unbeknownst to me, when I got there, he had passed away just mm-hmm. a few months before. So, I had been helped by. Um, uh, Zen Master Sung San Sunam in getting the proper visa uh, to to go to Korea. And I got there only a few weeks before the winter retreat. And once I realized Pyokcho was dead, I didn't really have a relationship with anybody else at, uh, at Sudoksa. And the, the, the Sung San Sunam's Gilche was going to take place at Sudoksa. So I just felt obliged that I should do that. And it was an international hall. There were a few Koreans, but mostly it was uh, Westerners. And I was pretty frustrated at their behavior. I had visited with my teacher three years before, and I learned the proper decorum. And they were just kind of smashing the decorum. So I just summoned the courage to get a Korean monk and help him understand that I just wanted to ask if I could become one Dam Sunam's student since his teacher invited me. And so I went in there and I was pretty nervous because we had never sat down with him. And I had this translator with me, sort of translating, his English was not great. And uh, I relayed my question and uh, and then he asked Soljang Sunam, who was then the current abbot of Sudoksa, what he thought. Soljang Sunam said, well, he has the gain of a Zen monk. And then the next thing that I heard was, can you come back in 24 hours and I'll have made a decision? I said, yes. So I came back and then uh, he told me I was starting fresh as a monk in his sangha, so that's. So he welcomed you into the Sudosa family. And being an American without, you know, true understanding of what it meant to train in Korea, I didn't realize how significant this family was in Korea. Yeah, over ninety percent Korean. Zen masters historically in Korea in the 20th century received transmission from either Mangong directly or one of his successors. So this has enabled me to have a relationship with not only with Wandam Sunam when he was living, but because I lived 
at Sudoksaf. Many of the monks are still alive that I trained with over, you know, 35 years ago. And in fact, one of them uh, who was my best friend, and he was the head monk, is now the Pangjang Sunam of Sudoksa. Mm. Yeah, this the story of the young Wandam singing the woodpecker song. I wonder what your thoughts are on the significance of that teaching. Mangong seemed to think that that song had real significance in terms of Buddhist teaching. What do you hear in the song? Well, I think the main point for me is uh, the, the, re the receiver of the song, right? And, and as he said when he was talking to the ladies, is that the pure-minded can see the significance when they hear that woodpecker song, and that if you had the sense of, oh, it's a sexual song, why is he singing it? You're sort of in the milieu of, of all of the people that, that would think that, even the people that taught young Jin Sung the song were making fun of him because he didn't understand. He was too, he was too pure of mind. Yeah. And if you listen with a pure mind, you only heard the joy of this. You have to picture Wandam Sunam. He was a little bitty short man, probably only, I don't know, five foot four or so. And uh, but if you can just imagine him up and kind of, uh, you know, dancing a little bit and singing this song enthusiastically, it just makes me laugh to think about it. All right. Well, the content of the song is interesting, too, that there's a woodpecker in the mountains drilling holes, and then people in their own homes can't, can't even get into the holes already waiting for them. Yeah. And although there, there is that sexual innuendo there, which is funny, there's also, a, for me, sort of a point there that, uh, I don't know, came across to me, living, you know, life in the mountains can be pretty hard, woodpeckers having to drill holes into trees, you having to, to do a lot of the work that you need to do just to survive, chopping wood and mm. growing your own food and you know, carrying water in buckets and you know, yeah. going to the bathroom outside and, you know, especially when it's cold. And, uh, and then I find myself sometimes even living in a pretty convenient, comfortable place like a city Zen center and uh, can still find a lot to complain about. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, right. that's one of the things I ex extracted from, from that song. Well, and I think that it wasn't unusual to have the young novices with these A-frames on their back out largely picking up deadwood. Yeah. Because in the days uh, gone by, and in, in many temples when I was still when I was there, the heat was provided uh, by uh, by wood. Yeah. And because they wouldn't want to cut down trees. Right. They they forage to find deadfall branches and so forth. Yeah. And um, so young Jensung. Uh, you know, could have been a struggling, and as you could imagine, a young novice out alone in the woods picking up uh, loose branches and, and then meeting these lumberjacks who then thought they would have 
you know, a little fun to cheer him up. And then yeah. they gave him a song and suddenly he <laughs> brightened up, right? Right. Like his mind just changed immediately and he started right. singing that song over and over again. Yeah. And uh, so, again, if you you met one Dom Sunim, you, you saw him. And if you just picture that man yeah. doing that, it, it makes you kind of laugh yeah, to me. Yeah, sure. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Adorable, really, and... In many ways, yeah. Uh, I wish I could somehow share that more than just the story, but yeah, his, I know his actual mean. mind with with his uh, students was quite something. You when you sat in front of him, uh, especially after I'd become a student and got a, more acquainted with the the community, you couldn't help but. Uh, get clear sitting in front of him mm. because you, you just would know that you have to be or it's going to be a really uncomfortable experience mm. and he's not going to make it uncomfortable for you but it's as if you're completely aware that he can look through all of your mm. stuff and on, on there are many occasions where I brought trouble to him you know my own trouble and uh, I would leave completely unhappy with what he had told me about the circumstances that I I described, and then he described it sort of the antithesis of that. Yeah. And then, but I had been trained enough to know I had to really look at that. Yeah. That I couldn't necessarily think that I would immediately catch my teacher's mind, and I realized that the fault was clearly mine. I had completely been biased in the way that I was viewing. A particular situation and I didn't understand at that time that I didn't understand culture yeah so and that that happens you know I'm one of many that could tell those kinds of stories uh, with their teacher one of the things that has been so wonderful being able to go and see Buddhism in living action in live action in a place like Korea is that in the West we have this view of Buddhism as being a highly serious practice. And I don't know if it has to do with our cultural conditioning or what it is, um, our relig own religious training, but I know I came to Buddhism with this idea that you know becoming a monk and meditation practice and Buddhist philosophy was very serious business. and. Uh, and so for a number of years before I was able to go to Korea, I was primarily practicing here with you in the West, but also um, in monasteries, but with other Americans for the most part. And it wasn't until I got to Korea, I would say the most significant teaching about being able to go there was recognize how seriously I was taking myself. Mm. And how seriously I was taking Buddhism and that in a way by doing that you're kind of sucking the life out of it and it becomes quite stale and really not much fun and I I love this story because I think it really illustrates that uh, the Buddhist traditions it's so alive it's so natural and it really is not um, put into this this box that we have in the West hmm. uh, it's a very organic way of life and so yeah a monk singing in the middle of a monastery a woodpecker song 
really isn't out of the ordinary. Mm. I can totally picture it, you know. <laughs> have so many memories and of monks and nuns and lay people just totally upending my own views of what Buddhism mm. should be yeah. or is uh, in a wonderful way. Yeah, if you look from the outside, you don't see how broad the view is, but when you are actually inside experiencing it in, in a way that, you know, you're living there, you're not just visiting, yeah. that's just a whole different experience. But when you're living there, you start to get the sense of how broad-minded uh, people actually are. Right. And they just seem to put all things in the proper perspective. So every monk that's growing up like one Dham Sunam did is getting just what he needs at any given time. And I think it's really important to understand that the Mangong Sunam was alive uh, training and becoming the Zen master primarily during the Korean occupation. He died shortly after. Right. And we all know the story of him, you know, striking down the lieutenant governor with his tongue right. about the, the value of Korean Buddhism versus Japanese Buddhism at the threat of his own life. Right. And, but we don't see so much the other side. Like I, when I went to, into Pyokjo Sunam, I was a working carpenter, very strong. He's sitting behind his tea table, and uh, he immediately beckoned me over. And Samasunam kind of pushed me, like I was a little like, what? And then he put his arm up, and we're going to arm wrestle an 86-year-old man that I didn't know at the time is without legs. I mean, he's got legs, but they don't work. Mm. And uh, he walks around on his hands, if you can imagine, with his legs cross-legged. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm smacked down with both arms as quick as I've ever been smacked down by anybody, and with a big laugh, you know, coming <laughs> right. from him. Like it was because we had, I think, some kind of an affinity. I don't think usually you invite somebody, you know, especially a foreigner, uh, at that at that period of time. Right. I have a whole lot of stuff that I wrote down about his relationship with Mangong Sunam that maybe at some point we'll be able to tell those stories as well. Yeah. And it sounds like that it was really that one encounter that opened <clears throat> your life to mm. uh, becoming a Sudoksa monk. Yeah. Incredible that our lives can, literally the entire trajectory of our life can be changed in, in one encounter. Yeah. It's true. I could never forget, I could never forget that that eventually I was going to make my way back right. to Sudoksa yeah. uh, to study with him. Yeah. And that trajectory ultimately <clears throat> brought you back here to Detroit and yeah. and uh, me here into your tea room and this podcast. Yeah. Life unfolds in an amazing way. I guess that's the ending bell. Thank you, Sunam. <laughs> <laughs>